The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this evening comes from John 14, 1 through 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Y'all pray with me. God, we are... So grateful to get to be uh, not only in your presence, but also in the presence of one another. And it's a, a gift that uh, I feel like the last six months plus has told us not to take for granted. So we're just grateful for, for that. And thanks for the fact that you don't change, like shifting shadows. You're, ever this, you're always the same. You never shift. You never change in your character. You never change in who you are at your core, that you are gracious and compassionate, that you're slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And you promise in your word, which is always true and always good, that when it is preached and when it is proclaimed and when it is taught and when it is read, that it doesn't return back void. So we trust that promise tonight as we look at John 14, as we think about Jesus as the only way to get to you. God, would your word not return void, but would it uh, with the power of the Holy Spirit, go deep into our hearts such that we think differently, love differently, believe differently, live differently. We love you. Probably since in Jesus' name, amen. Good to be with you guys. How are we doing this evening? Good. Good to be with you. If you have a Bible, John 14 is where we're going to be. Uh, if you didn't already know, based on what Lindsay read, it's going to be on the screen as well. If we haven't met before, my name is Tim. I serve as the pastor here at Citizens. Like Cole said, we exist to be a Jesus-centered family on mission with him. So everything we do as a church collectively and as a people individually, we want to be centered around the person and work of Jesus. And so as we're meeting on a monthly basis over the fall, we're taking time to look in the gospel of John and see what does Jesus says say about himself, right? What are these different I am statements that Jesus says? And so we've talked about how Jesus says, I am the bread of life, how he said that I am the light of the world. Last month, we talked about how he is the good shepherd. And tonight, we're going to look at our last and final one before we move into our Advent season next month. And we're going to talk about this reality that Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Before we get there, let me do a little bit of setup for us. So this summer in July, I got to go on a trip with a bunch of pastors to the mountains of North Carolina. And it was a week-long trip that I was looking forward to all year. So to kind of recap the first six months of the year for Lindsay and I, it was all sorts of crazy. So we uh, had a baby right at the start of all of the lockdowns for COVID. We uh, moved jobs. We quit jobs, started new jobs. We sold our home. We bought a house here in Charlotte, sight unseen because of covid regulations. And I was reading uh, this news article, I don't know how true it is, but they say that uh, having a child, a change in your job, quitting a job, starting a new job, and buying a house are three of the top five most stressful things that someone can do in their life. I don't know if it's true, but it made me feel good, right? And we decided to do all of those in a three-month span in the middle of a global pandemic. So like a lot of you, the first six months were just crazy. And so I was so excited to get away, to get to the mountains, to get to spend time with these other guys for a week. And 
for the most part, the week started off really good. So we were supposed to be there Monday to Saturday, and by Thursday morning, I had played two rounds of golf, which if you're in my group, you know is good in and of itself. I got to play, uh, spend all day on a boat on a lake. I got to go whitewater kayaking. I got to eat good food, drink good drink. I didn't pay for any of it, right? It was an incredible start to the week, and then something happened on Thursday night. I was sitting there, I was out on, the, on the, the porch overlooking these beautiful North Carolina mountains as the sun was setting, and I kid you not, I had this thought, I want to go home. And homesickness was not something that I'd really experienced before. I kind of prided myself on being a little bit of a, a wanderer, a little bit able to, I like traveling, I like hotels more than I probably should, like I like being on the road and, and flying and just all of this stuff. And so it was just kind of this weird feeling of, I don't know what this is like to long for home. I'm in the middle of this incredible week, everything's going awesome, and yet all I wanted was to be home with my people, with my family. And I think if you've lived any amount of time on this earth, you might be semi-familiar with that type of feeling, that where you are is not where you should be. Not just talking about when you're on the road or traveling or whatever for work, or for job, for school. What I'm talking about is this deep feeling within you that even in the highest highs, the best times of life, that deep feeling within us of, is this all there is? Like, is there something more? Is there something else? Like even in the greatest times, this just doesn't quite feel like home. Author C.S. Lewis, in his classic book, Mere Christianity, says it this way. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Lewis's argument is that if all the things we find on earth, good and bad, things like money and power and success and sex and family and comfort and friendship, all of these good and bad things, if all of these things ultimately do not provide our hearts with a feeling of home and peace and rest, then maybe we were designed for something greater. Maybe we were designed for a different home. What Jesus is going to do in John 14 is he's going to address this yearning within our hearts. This deep yearning that we have to be home. Let's look at it together. John 14, we're going to start in verse 1. Jesus says to his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. All right, pause. Let's talk about what Jesus is doing here, what he's setting up here. So during Jesus' earthly ministry, as he was traveling from town to town, doing miracles, teaching, preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, he had amassed at different times pretty large followings. So sometimes there were 5,000 or more people that would gather around Jesus to hear what it is that he had to say. But throughout his earthly ministry, he had 12 specific men that were with him all of the time. These men you might hear referred to as the 12 disciples, right? These guys that gave up everything in their lives to follow Jesus, to be with him. You can read the stories in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus rolls up into the scene and says, hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm the one you've been waiting for. Give up everything. Follow me. Be my disciple. And these 12 guys are like, yeah, we're in. They just leave homes. They leave jobs. They leave families. They leave friendships. They devote everything in their lives to being with the rabbi, being with Jesus, learning how he lives, learning to imitate their lives after him. Then here in John 14, what turns out to be the final about 48 hours of Jesus' life, we have this crazy chapter of John 13. And John 13, which really takes place over the course of about 20 or 30 minutes, maybe up to an hour at a dinner, the 12 disciples find out that one of them, Judas, is going to betray Jesus, that one of them, Peter, is going to deny Jesus, 
and that Jesus is going to leave them, and where he's going, they cannot follow. So it makes a lot of sense that Jesus would start here in John 14 saying, let not your hearts be troubled. But then he continues. He says this, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He says, trust me, I'm leaving you. I'm going away, but trust me, I'm going to be with my father. Trust me, trust God. Why? Verse 2. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Now, I'm a youth group kid of the late 90s, early 2000s, right? So every time I hear John 14, 2 through 4, my mind immediately goes to one of the cheesiest Christian subculture songs of the late 90s called Big House by Audio Adrenaline, all right? If you haven't heard this song, the chorus says this, talking about heaven, it says it's a big, big house with lots and lots of room, a big, big table with lots and lots of food, a big, big yard where we can play football. It's a big, big house. It's my father. Just me? Cool. Sweet. I'm I'm just me. Cheese 90s subculture. And so when I read these verses, John 14, I'm like, that sounds a little bit weird, right? Like, Jesus has a hotel, and he's preparing rooms. Like, what is going on here? But I don't want us to miss the beauty of what Jesus is saying. He says, I have to go away, but I'm going away because this world is not my home. I'm going back to my true home. And the good news is I'm preparing a place for you also to go to your true home, the presence of God. He says, I'm preparing a place for this home to be your home too if you trust me and believe in me. Jesus says, this isn't your home. This place isn't going to cut it. I've got a new home for you. He says, you know the way. Thomas speaks up in verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Which is poor Thomas, right? Anytime Thomas shows up in scripture, he just isn't always doing what he should. He speaks up, Jesus, we don't know. He's like, you know the way. Thomas is like, we don't know. We don't know where we're going. How can we? You're just always talking in riddles and stories. It's kind of confusing. If you get underneath the surface of Thomas's question, what he's asking Jesus is, where are you taking us? Where are you going. We gave up everything to follow you. We gave up everything to be with you. Our whole lives were reoriented around following you. The question is less Thomas being confused or uncertain and more Thomas asking the question that was probably on the disciples' hearts and sits on our hearts. Jesus, can you get us home? Jesus, can you get us home? Can you take us to that place where our souls and our hearts are finally at rest? Jesus, where are you going? Can you get us home to be with God? You see, Thomas, like the other disciples, was a practicing Jew. So he knew what the Bible teaches was that the home of humanity, where you and I were meant to dwell, was in the presence of God. We see this all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2. The first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, were created and dwelt with God. They were in the garden walking with God. Everything was flourishing and as it should But because of sin, we see in Genesis 3, that relationship, that at-homeness that man was supposed to have with God was broken and separated. Humanity is simply not at home with God anymore. Because of sin, men and women cannot and could not enter into the presence of God. They were not able to be home where they were supposed to be. So Jesus shows up and he says, I'm going to my Father and you're coming with me. I'm going to make a way for you to be at home with God. God. And that's what we see in John 14, 6. Our I am statement for this month. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. 
I'm the way and the truth and the life. I just want to spend a few minutes breaking this down together. Number one, Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. I don't want us to miss the power of this statement. Jesus is the way. If we want to get to God, if we want reconciliation, redemption, restored relationship at wholeness with God now and forever, Jesus says, I am the way. Not I'm going to show you a way. Not on one particular option you can try to be a way. He says, I am the way. It is only through me. The way to God is through Jesus and Jesus alone. This is not a new claim in the teachings of Jesus. So if you read throughout the book of John over and over and over again, Jesus is going to make this claim that if you want to be right with God, the only way is through him. He says this in John 3, 16. John 5.40, John 627, 8.24, 10.9, over and over and over again. Jesus says, Do you want forgiveness of sins? Do you want life eternal with God? Do you want to be washed clean from your past and present and future? Do you want redemption and salvation? It is only through Him. He is the way. You see, in the Old Testament, God had set up for the Jewish people a system by which they could enter into his presence. So when they built the tabernacle and then the temple, their place of worship, the manifest presence of God was in the innermost part of the temple or the tabernacle, and it was called the Holy of Holies. And God said, okay, because of sin, you cannot enter into my presence. And so they actually established, put up as a symbol for this, a veil or a curtain, which separated the manifest presence of God from humanity. Because they were sinful, they couldn't enter into God's presence, except God made a way that once a year, the high priest would enter behind the curtain and would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people. They needed someone to be a go-between. They needed a mediator. They needed someone to go and mediate between them and God in the presence of God. And then what happens is Jesus shows up, lives a perfect life, dies the death that we deserve on the cross. And yet when he dies, you can read it in the gospels, the veil or the curtain in the temple actually tears in two, symbolizing and showing, hey, that we have now not one mediator every year that goes in to offer sacrifices for our sins, but we have one final mediator, one time, once and for all in the person and work of Jesus who has died and his blood has made a way for us to be made right with God. And so the veil or the curtain is torn so that you and I now, because of what Jesus has done, can enter into God's presence. Jesus here in John 14 says, I am the way. There is no other way. It's my sacrifice. It's my blood that I shed. What that means is that salvation is in the person and work of Jesus. Salvation is in the person and work of Jesus, which means it's not about the amount of faith you have, rather it's about who your faith is in. I love the way Pastor Tim Keller says it. He says it so well. He says, it is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith is your faith in Jesus. He is the way. It's the first thing Jesus says. It's a bold claim, but he can say this because of what he says next. Jesus is the truth. He says, I am the truth. What that means is that he defines, Jesus defines in his absolute objective reality about the world. He is truth. Now, for Jesus to say this was just as much of a bold claim in his day as it was in ours. So the world in which Jesus is speaking this reality that he is the truth, he is the basis of all reality, was a world dominated by the cultural and social and religious norms of the Roman Empire. What the Romans believed basically is that all gods were equal and valid. 
right? So they said, hey, you can follow your God. They can follow their God. Just kind of figure out whichever God works for you. And that's great. It was a polytheistic culture. Everyone had whatever God seemed to fit their way of living. And and Jesus steps in into that culture and says, no, I am the truth. I am ultimate reality. It's not your truth, whatever works for you, their truth, whatever works for them. I am the truth. Now, does the Roman culture sound like a culture that you might be familiar with? Right? Whatever's good for you is good for you. Whatever's good for me is good for me. Jesus shows up boldly into the Roman culture and says, no, I am the truth, just like he shows up into the middle of our Western culture and says, no, I am the truth. Let me show you real quick how we got here. So uh, back, way back, about 300 years ago, there was a period of time now known as the Enlightenment, right? And Enlightenment was dominated by this idea of reason, and so philosophers during that time, people like, um, like Descartes and uh, David Hume and these types of people would basically talk about how what we can trust is what's right in front of us. And so it was this idea of, hey, we can trust what we can, te- what we can test, what we, our senses, what we can see, what we can feel, what we can taste, what we can touch, all of these things. Reason is the primary thing. That's what we have to trust. There is one universal truth, and we have to use everything we can to understand and discover this one universal truth. Now, in response to this idea, this way of thinking, rose this wave of, of thought now known as uh, modernity or uh, being modern. And so what the modernity philosophers said is basically like, okay, if that's true, if we can only know what we can test, then they developed what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame, right? So if what is reality, what is true is only what I can test and, and experience with my senses, then why do we think God exists, right? I can't test God. I can't use the scientific method to see if God exists or not. I can't touch him. I can't taste him. I can't feel him. I can't use my senses to experience God. So ultimately, what's true is only what's right in front of us. This is the argument of modernity. Now, around the 1930s or 40s, depending on who you read, there arose this movement in response to modernity that's now called postmodernism. What the postmoderns believed is, okay, if the imminent frame is real, right? If we can only know what is true with what I can experience right in front of me, then why, based on your experience, do you think that you know the truth and I don't know the truth? So basically the argument was, okay, if I only can say what is true based on my experience, then I have to take into account my context. I have to take into account my brain. I have to take into account uh, my way of viewing in the world and thinking. None of us are uh, unbiased observers of scientific reality, right? So that means what you're discovering with your senses might be different from what I'm discovering with my senses, So it's not one universal truth that all of us are trying to discover. You have to figure out what your truth is based on the way that you experience the world, the way that you've lived, your context, your history, your story of origin, all of those types of things. Your truth is your truth. The only absolute objective truth is that there is no absolute objective truth, which doesn't make sense. We'll talk about more in a second. But Jesus shows up into the middle of this, the Romans, this polytheistic, whatever works for you, go for it, and says, no, that's not what it is. I am the truth. What that means is that I'm not one option for you to consider among many. It's not, hey, you want to get to God? Good, figure out whatever works for you. Jesus says, no, I'm the way. I'm the truth. It's a bold claim then. It's a bold claim now. Number three, Jesus is the life. Jesus is the life. Jesus here is offering both life to come That's clear, verses one through three, right? He talks about, I go to prepare a place. There's a life forever with God, but he's also talking about life here and now. We talked about this a ton a few months ago when we looked at Jesus being the resurrection and the life, right? That he comes to offer life zoe, life uh, flourishing, life as it's meant to be lived. Life in the presence of God, life in the full. Jesus says, I am the way, I'm the truth, 
I am the life. And then what comes may be the boldest claim of Christianity and of Jesus. And that's the second part of 14.6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You don't get to God except through me. You don't get salvation, heaven, eternal life, none of that except through repentance, total surrender, and trust to Jesus. He's the only way to God. And some of you, you might be new, you might be a little nervous, a little uncertain, a little bit like this is 2020. Are we really going to talk about this? I just want to let you know I preached on politics last week, so you can't get me nervous, all right? You just can't. I talked about politics. This is not going to make me nervous anymore. Jesus says, I am the way to God. Usually, in response to this claim, John 14, 6, I hear a couple of different arguments. So first, I hear something like, well, it's arrogant to claim that you know this objective truth. Right? It's arrogant to say that you are right and we are wrong. The second thing you might hear is it's exclusive. Right? I would much rather believe that all good people to go to heaven, regardless of what they believe. And so I want to take a second to talk about those two objections. And if you're here and you're new, I want to say welcome We're so glad that you're here. I hope this is helpful to you. I hope that I do a good job of winsomely putting why these arguments don't stand up. I hope that that you find this to be a safe place, our church, citizens, to be a safe place for you to belong before you believe, to wrestle in community with who God is and what that means for your life. And if Jesus really is who he says he is, if he really died like we read that he died, if he really rose again like we read that he did. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I hope this is helpful as you wrestle with your own doubts. As you wrestle with your own uncertainties, but is God real? Is this whole thing worth it? I hope it also gives you ground to stand on as you enter into your neighborhoods, into your workplaces with the good news of the gospel. Wherever you're at, I hope this is helpful for you. I just want to take a few minutes before we close to look at these two claims. Number one, it's arrogant to claim that Jesus is the only way to God. It's arrogant to claim that Jesus is the only way to God. Say that you have the truth and everyone else is wrong. So part of this comes from what G.K. Chesterton called the dislocation of humility. I love this quote. He says, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. We are on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. What Chesterton's arguing is we were meant to be uncertain about ourselves, but certain about what is reality and true. And he says, we've actually flipped that. And in false humility, we've actually been uncertain about truth, but certain about our opinions on things. This is the dislocation of humility. And he says, we're too modest to believe in the multiplication table. So let me break down what this is saying, right? If someone said to you, hey man, two times two equals four. And you responded to that person, that is entirely arrogant that you would think that. That wouldn't make sense, right? Everyone would look at you like you're silly because two times two equals four. Here's the thing. Truth is not about pride or humility. Truth is about fact. Make sure you caught that. Truth is not about pride or humility. It's about fact. So if you went to dinner after this and someone said to you, hey, Raleigh is the capital of North Carolina, right? That would not be an arrogant claim. Now, if they said, listen up, you idiots. Raleigh is the capital of North Carolina, you stupids, right? That would be arrogance. That would be pride. That would be wrong. Right? But truth is not about pride or humility. Truth is about fact. To claim that Jesus is God who rose from the dead and that he alone can get us to heaven isn't about pride or humility. Now, could be wrong. We think it's right. But it's not about pride. It's not about arrogance. It's about fact. In response to this, I've heard people say things like, well, religion is like climbing a mountain. Right? It's one mountain, and God's at the top, and you're on this side, and I'm on this side, and none of us know that it's a big mountain, but once we get to the top, we're going to see, hey, you were climbing your side, and I was climbing mine, but really it's all one big mountain. 
Or maybe you've heard the illustration that uh, religion or God is like an elephant, right? And we have three blind men and they're all feeling different parts of the elephant. And one of them feels the tail and he's like, well, this is obviously a snake. The other one feels the trunk and he's like, no, it's a giraffe or however the illustration goes. And this whole idea is that there's one person that has this vantage point that everyone else can't see. And one day we're all going to realize, hey, it's actually the same mountain. It's actually the same elephant. But I've got to ask in light of those illustrations, if all I can see is my part of the mountain or feel my part of the elephant, at what vantage point is that person where they can see all of it? What makes them able to say, it's actually a mountain. You guys can't see the whole thing, but I can see the whole thing which to me sounds a little bit more like arrogance. Leslie Newbegin, a missionary to India, in his book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, says it this way. He says, There is an appearance of humility in the protestation that the truth is much greater than any one of us can grasp. But it may be, in fact, an arrogant claim to a kind of knowledge which is superior to all others. So he says, hey, it seems really humble to say, actually, it's one big mountain and we can all just see part of it, but actually that is probably a false humility. We have to ask the person, what is this absolute vantage point from which you claim to be able to relativize all the claims these different scriptures and religions make? In other words, when you say no one has a superior take on a spiritual reality, that is in and of itself a superior take on a spiritual reality. To be able to say, no, I see the whole thing. So as Christians, what we do is we look to the Bible, right? And we see John 14, that the ultimate basis of reality is not in a claim, but in a person. Jesus Christ, Jesus himself, who says in John 14, 11, just a few verses later, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. So we can believe as Christians and claim this objective reality as Christians because Jesus validated himself and his claims when he rose from the dead and defeated death and appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses. So if anyone can define what truth is, it's, it's the one who created the universe, Right? If anyone can say this is reality, it's the one who created reality and then came and took on flesh, lived a perfect life that we cannot live, died the death we deserve, and yet rise again and appear to 500 people saying, yeah, I got this. I can define reality. I'm God. The arrogance is not in the claim itself. Right? That's, truth is not about pride or humility. Truth is about fact. Number two, isn't it more inclusive to claim that all good people go to heaven no matter what they believe? So if we claim Jesus is the only way to God, are we as Christians being unnecessarily exclusive? A couple of things here you have to wrestle with. First, you have to ask yourself, who defines good? Right, so if you define good, what happens if my definition of good rubs against your definition of good? Whose definition wins? Or if God defines good, then all we have to do is take a quick glance at the Ten Commandments, which God says if you break one, you're guilty of breaking all of them. We read things like, you shall not lie. Don't jealously desire or covet what your neighbors have. Don't dishonor your father and mother. Don't care more about other things or people than God. And I think all of us would know that we're not doing super great. So when you say, hey, I think this is exclusive, I I rather think it's better to say all good people go to heaven. The question is, do you know who you're excluding? Bad people, right? People who don't measure up. Those who fall short or are inadequate, which is actually far more divisive or exclusive or self-righteous than Jesus is. Right? So to reject Christianity because it is exclusive, but then say all good people go to heaven, you are actually, according to the gospel, being more exclusive than Jesus. Let me show you why I say this. John 14, 1 through 3. Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be 
also. This is what makes Jesus and Christianity so different from every other tradition, every other religion, every other way of trying to make ourselves right with whatever, whoever we think is God. Jesus says, I've got a place for you, and it's not based on whether you measure up. It's not based on whether you do the right things. It's not based on some idea of karma or penance or reincarnation or whatever. He says it's based on belief. What that means is that at the foot of the cross, anyone can come. The good news of the gospel is that anyone can come. The good news of the gospel is that broken, messed up people like all of us are can come to Jesus because it's not based on our past, our present, or our future, but it's based on the finished work of Jesus on the cross on our behalf. Jesus is not exclusive about the who. He's just exclusive about the how. Let me say that again. Jesus is not exclusive about the who. He's just exclusive about the how. The good news of the cross says anyone can come, right? The people that we consider the worst of society, the worst of the worst, they can come. And everybody else, all of us, who the Bible says are sinners separated from God, the good news of the gospel is you have a place at the foot of the cross. If you're willing to acknowledge I'm a sinner, in need of a savior, and I cannot make myself right with God. I cannot get back into the presence of God. The only way I can be at home with my savior in heaven forever is to be washed clean and made new, and so I'm gonna repent of my sins and believe. And I receive his perfect sacrifice that is the mediator one time, once and for all. Now he stands at the right hand of God, pleading on behalf of all who would trust in him. Jesus is not exclusive in the who, just the how. It's only through him. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Let me end with this. Look back at verse 3. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. This is what's so hard to explain to all the, the questions and the arguments about the exclusivity of Jesus and, and whether he's the only way to heaven, whatever. It's hard to explain that for those of us who know Jesus, is the fact that heaven is heaven is because he is there. The good news of Jesus is not about just getting to some place. It's about being in the presence of the one who created us. It's about being at home with God. You see, heaven isn't heaven without Jesus. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. It's his presence that makes it perfection. He makes it home. It isn't home apart from the presence of Jesus. And when you realize that, it makes all of these arguments about, is Jesus really the only way to God kind of seem like, what? He's the point. Jesus is the point. It's not heaven without him. I don't want heaven if he's not there. I want to be in the presence of my creator who died for me and rose again forever. That's the point of heaven. Of course, Jesus is the only way because Jesus is the point. He's who we get. We get him forever for eternity. He's the point. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if you're not a Christian, two challenges. Well, number one, if you're not a Christian, I would ask you to wrestle with these claims of Jesus. Take him at his word. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. Wrestle with it. We'd love for you to be around to ask us questions. We'll have some folks down front as well as out in the tent that would love to ask, would love to answer any questions you have. Hey, what's up with this Jesus guy? Is he really the only way? What's, what's going on here? We'd love to walk alongside of you as you wrestle with who God is and what that means for your life. If you are a Christian, I want to remind you, Jesus is the only way. That's why we go. That's why we plant churches why we engage our neighborhoods, our coworkers, our family, our friends with the gospel. In Romans 10, Paul's kind of responding to this whole argument of what happens if Jesus is the only way to God, what happens for those who don't believe? 
Paul's response in Romans 10 is a series of questions. He, he asks this question. The question is, how can they believe if they haven't heard? And he says, how can they hear unless they're told? How can people tell unless they're sent? And then he ends with this phrase, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. The exclusivity of Jesus is why we live on mission. It's why we plant churches, because we have so been changed by the only one who can actually change us and redeem us to God, and so we have no choice but to go tell everybody else who will listen. It's the good news of the gospel. We go because he is the only way, celebrating what he's done for us, inviting others to believe and trust in him. Every time we gather, we celebrate communion. We have little cups of, of bread and juice on your seat. And the night that Jesus was betrayed, this very night we read about in John 14, Jesus took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he said, this bread represents my body given for you. In the same way he took a cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. For every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you're announcing my death until I return. So every time we gather together, church, we want to take communion and remember the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, which is the only way to be made right with God. If you're not a Christian, this is one of the only things we'd ask you not to participate in, simply because you'd be saying something is true about yourself that's just not yet, but rather than take communion, we invite you to take Jesus, to believe he is who he says he is. We'd love to talk to you about that afterward. I'll be down front to answer any questions that you have. Let me pray, and we're going to respond in worship, taking communion together. Pray with me. God, thank you that it's not up to us. And thanks for the good news of the gospel, that the foot of the cross is a leveling field. The cross reminds us that we are more broken than we can ever imagine or fathom, but we're more loved than we might ever believe. Now Jesus died for bad people and for people who think they're good. He died for all of us. God, and so I pray that as we look at John 14, 6, and we hear this reality that you are the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father, no one comes to you except through your Son, God, that we would not let it fall on deaf ears. God, if we've been following you, if we've been walking with you, we would not just say, yeah, I know, I know, sounds good. I've heard this a million times. We would actually sit and soak in the reality that Jesus has made a way for us to return home to be with you. All we must do is repent and believe. And we trust, trust your Holy Spirit, trust that he's powerful, working, able to bring faith and salvation to those who would believe and trust. So we just pray your might, your hand, help us to wrestle, help us to see what it is that you have for us in your word. You are the way, you are the truth, you are the life. You are the one that gets us home. We love you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.